Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 54. Machinery of Death Sometimes you can be so still, you can hear the grass grow. Sometimes you can be so still, you can hear the voices of the children who must have once played in even fields of places like this. Willie Reddick's Death Row, December 3rd, 1988 Ladies and gentlemen, I fear the subject of this chapter would take an entire book to do it any justice. So the length of this episode will be a little bit longer than most. So bear with me, and thank you for your time and patience. The number of people executed in the United States since 1976. 1,577. More than 195 people have been released from death row with evidence of their innocence and an average of 3.94 wrongly convicted death row prisoners have been exonerated in that same time. As of 2023, 108 countries have abolished the death penalty for all crimes. Yet in the U.S., nearly 2,500 inmates are currently on death row. The southern states have executed a total of 1,287 people. The Midwest, 198. The West, 89. The Northeast, 4 while Texas alone has put to death a total of 584 people. The state of Illinois, where the 1996 Donald Bull trial took place, a total of 12 people convicted of murder have been executed since 1977, the year that lethal injection widely replaced the electric chair. And since, all persons on death row in Illinois have been executed by lethal injection until capital punishment in Illinois was abolished in 2011. However, 27 states still practice the death penalty to this day. Death row prisoners in the U.S. typically spend more than a decade awaiting execution or court rulings overturning their death sentences. And more than half of all prisoners currently sentenced to death in the United States have been on death row for over 18 years. While on death row, those serving capital sentences are generally isolated from other prisoners, excluded from prison educational and employment programs and sharply restricted in terms of visitation and exercise, spending as many as 23 hours a day alone in their cells. This raises the question of whether death row prisoners are being subject to two distinct punishments, the death sentence itself 
and the years of living in conditions tantamount to solitary confinement. Moreover, unlike general population prisoners, even in solitary confinement, prisoners on death row live in a state of constant uncertainty over when they will be executed. For some death row prisoners, this isolation and anxiety sharply deteriorates their health and mental status. But before we take a look-see at the daily routine that keeps an inmate in their cell 23 hours each day, let us first take a step back, back in time, and consider what comes prior. They say fate stands where a man dies, and that destiny is unmovable. If that is the case, where does man's fortune begin but with birth, childhood? That state of being a child, going by the biological yardstick, that life stage between birth and puberty, when a mix of wonder, innocence, imagination, fun and happiness, playing, exploring, learning, and socializing with a minimum of adult interference, also referred to as the wonder years. It is clear that childhood has a profound effect on adulthood, as our early experiences shape our beliefs about ourselves, others, and the world around us. Therefore, we learn rules to protect self-belief, which may make us vulnerable. And in doing this, we all form dysfunctional behaviors to one degree or another. When not adequately adjusted through adult interference, these behaviors can lead to mental health problems, which in turn can lead to issues later in life, including social dysfunction, along with deliberate or indeliberate acts that may cause physical or psychological harm to others. With any act considered a crime, it is more often than not, if caught and charged, until a trial held before one's peers, to attempt to prove that one's acts were indeliberate, if that be the case, or to prove that you are simply not guilty on the other. If found guilty, but before sentencing, the defense team has one last shot to circle back around when making a case for a more lenient sentence. These cases of desired leniency are often presented by using evidence to prove that one had been unjustly positioned to be predisposed to commit such harmful acts. But positioned by what? What else than childhood? In the case of the convicted, a subpar childhood of which, in fact, had shaped one's early experiences and beliefs about oneself, others, and the world around them. Therefore, teaching the subject specific self-imposed rules employed to protect oneself and one's beliefs in a way that has made the subject more vulnerable. And in doing this, the convicted, to one degree or another, had involuntarily formed those dysfunctional behaviors. And again, when not adequately adjusted through adult interference, those behaviors lead to mental health problems, which in turn, lead to issues later in the subject's life, leading to acts that may have caused physical or psychological harm to others that have now led to this point, sentencing. So what of those wonder years of those who find themselves before a judge sentencing them to death? What are the commonalities? What are those childhood traits death row inmates waiting on execution share to an undeniable degree? In Welcome to Hell, Letters and Writings from Death Row, published in 1991, edited by Jane Ahrens, she collages together with the intent, well, better spoken in her words. This book sets out to give a voice to the 3,000 men and women on death row in the United States through the letters they have written to people on the outside. For periods of up to 20 years, they have spent 23 hours a day in cells, measuring 6 feet by 9, 
waking each day to the knowledge that the state is actively trying to take their lives. Some crack, but others rise above their circumstances. In doing so, they can be confronted with their true selves and touch depths in a way that most of us never do. Those of us writing to them often gain at least as much from the prisoners as we are ever able to give to them. To correspond with someone under permanent threat of death, to gain an insight into their backgrounds, and to share their innermost feelings is at once extraordinarily inspiring and humbling. She goes on to state, This book attempts to show the human face of death row, to show that the death penalty is not about statistics, but about individual human beings. Above all, I hope that when people read what the prisoners have written, they will feel as strongly as I do, that whatever these men have done, they have not forfeited their right to live. Assuredly, many have committed crimes that fill us with loathing and anger, and I can well understand the deep, unbridled fury and desire for retribution that victims' families and friends so often feel. Many relatives and friends of victims would, I am sure, feel appalled that anyone would be so naive as to write to these condemned men and women and offer them non-judgmental support and friendship. All I can say is that through the letter writing, we have seen a totally different side of the men and women on death row. The prisoners provide deeply affecting glimpses into their wretched childhoods in an all-too-familiar pattern of sexual and physical abuse, poverty, neglect, lack of love, cut-short education, and unemployment followed by petty crime, alcohol, and drug abuse, and the more serious offenses until something goes hideously wrong. Their already fragile self-esteem is then further shattered by the hostility of a system that offers no hope or support, but remorselessly seeks, often for periods of seven, ten, or more years, to take their lives. This book consists mostly of excerpts from prisoners' own letters. They speak with their own voices, which are far more eloquent and telling than mine could ever be. In particular, I tried to let the inner child of each person Speak the child turned into an alcoholic at six, or a male prostitute at eight, physically and sexually abused, and deprived of the love and support most of us take for granted. For many, death row is the first time they have been able to listen to the anguish of their own inner child. In Chapter 3, Society's Debt and Society's Response, Jane begins with a quote. They say a man ain't supposed to cry, no matter what, no matter why. Well, I am a man, and I hope you understand quite often. Like the rain falls from the sky, many a tear has fallen from my eyes, mainly because I am not afraid to show how I feel inside. You see, Mama taught me to live on love and on some foolish pride. Willie Reddick's Death Row. From there, Miss Ahrens goes on to write, The childhood pattern of those on death row is all too familiar. An unhappy home, lack of love and affection, violence, sexual abuse, poverty, lack of education, lack of self-esteem and self-identity. It is estimated that 90% of death row inmates were sexually abused as children. One prisoner wrote that he was introduced to alcohol at age 6, and another that he was forced into male prostitution at the age of eight. The question arises as to why some men respond so violently to their upbringing and circumstances while others do not. 
America's death rows are made up of entirely different people than you may have been told. For the most part, they are socially deprived because of the actual handicaps that are not recognized as legal handicaps. Some are emotionally handicapped because they were never in a healthy environment where they could properly respond to everyday life's normal frustrations. A majority were abused physically or mentally and, as a result, suffered from an extreme lack of self-esteem. Abused children usually believe they are at fault and the cause of the abuse by being somehow bad. They feel they are not a good child or it wouldn't be happening to them. So they grew up with an overload of guilt and they don't know what they were guilty of that justified a parent or parent's abuse of them. They have, as a consequence, absolutely no sense of self-worth. Some are cheated by their genes of a whole mind. Some of them are childlike to a pitiful degree. Some of them are totally insane and have been for many years. In some cases, the defense and prosecutor's psychiatrist all said the person was insane before, during, and after the crime. Yet the prosecutor asked for and got the death sentence. Why do this, knowing of the insanity? Because there's ten times more media coverage of a death penalty trial than a typical trial. It keeps the prosecutor's name before the voters. Many death sentences result from going to trial just before elections. Commonly, a death sentence wouldn't be sought in some cases, but because of the impending election and multitude of media coverage, the prosecutor can't resist the lure of the additional limelight. So someone gets a death sentence for a crime much less shocking to the conscience than others the prosecutor has let off with a life sentence. Miss Ahrens also states of those she had written, most of the men came from tragic backgrounds, having suffered as children from violence, broken homes, and often sexual abuse, and lapsing as they grow up into the world of drugs, alcohol, and petty larceny. For some of them, I discovered, to my astonishment, that death row represented the first period of real stability in their lives. Although many of them had committed terrible deeds, many were on death row because of a single instance of lost control. Very few of those on death row fall into the category of cold and vicious psychopaths. And this was certainly true of those I met. The following is a remarkable account of the childhood and introduction to crime of an inmate in Georgia. Dear Jan, perhaps to help you understand me a little better and give some kind of explanation as to why I'm here on death row, I should tell you about my life. Also, this information about myself should explain why I don't and haven't had any form of support since I've been on death row. I often wonder what my life would have been like if I had been raised in a home with caring and nurturing parents. I received very little emotional support or sustenance from either of my parents. I instead was subjected to indifference and comments aimed at belittling me. I was raised in a home where violence was a ready solution to family problems. My mother often beat me, usually with extension cords or whips. My father's beatings were usually more severe. Both of my parents physically and mentally abused me. At the age of 10, my father beat me so severely that I had to be treated for a broken leg. As a result of my own introspection and alienation from my family, I developed a pattern of running away from home at a very young age. My first episode of running away from home occurred when I was in the third grade, and this continued through my adolescence. I ran away from home at least 15 times. It was often that I walked away from a beating with bruises all over my face and head. 
at the age of 12, I was taken by my mother to Georgia Regional Hospital, where I spent several weeks. My mother's complaint was that I exhibited antisocial behavior patterns and that I ran away from home repeatedly. This admission followed shortly after an incident where I reported both my parents to the police for growing marijuana. While I took some of the marijuana to the police station, while others in my family silently supported my account, neither the police nor my psychiatric social worker believed my story. I told them I had reported my parents because I wanted to be placed into a foster home. During my stay at Georgia Regional, when I told the social workers and psychiatrists I was being beaten and that my parents were involved in drugs, I was reprimanded for lying, despite a notion on my physical exam report about scars from beatings and a burn on my chest. My treatment team sent me back home. The stay at Georgia Regional assumed I was overstating my bad home environment because of their failure to consult with any other family member except my mother. At this point in time, my home life was not only intolerable, but was also very dangerous. And I think after this incident, I think I gave up all hope of trying to find someone who would help me because I never tried again. While many children become very introverted when raised in a type of environment in which I was raised, and are rendered so immobile that they fail to seek help, I attempted to find a better environment for myself. These efforts began in third grade when I would run away from home. I needed some rest from being beaten because my parents felt that I had been bad over something I didn't know about or do. While I recognized I needed a different home setting than the one I found while residing with either parent, I was repeatedly thwarted in my efforts. With each runaway, I would return because I had no place else to go. And when I asked the staff at the Georgia Regional not to send me back to my parents' house because I could not live with them without being beaten, they, after performing no investigation above speaking to my mother, chose for whatever reason not to believe me and sent me home. I was thus unable, despite my efforts, to find a more nurturing and caring environment. Throughout my adolescent years, I would run away from home and live on the streets, stealing food from stores until I learned about detention centers. I then would break into a school or store or set off the alarm intentionally and wait for the police so I could be placed in a detention center when I got tired as a child of living like a wino. After a month or two, they would send me back home and I would immediately do the same thing again, spending very little, if any time, at home with my family members. At the age of 19, my criminal life began to develop and take form. I no longer would steal or burglarize to be arrested, but I started doing it for the money. This continued until I was arrested for this crime that I'm on death row for now. I was in the process of committing a burglary when this happened. There's evidence in my case to support the fact that the killing was an accident. The victim wasn't beaten or raped. She had a bruise on her hand that she had got when we were there struggling for the gun. She was shot once on the right side of her chest, but in the angle of her heart, she died instantly. I didn't know she had died because when the gun went off, we both let go of it and I ran. Yes, I accept the responsibility for this crime happening, although I didn't intentionally take another human being's life, but I will never accept the indoctrination that I am a heartless, cold-blooded murderer. If for whatever reason I must be executed, God forbid I will, then I will meet death with a smile on my face and nothing but love in my heart for all mankind, and yes, even for my oppressors. One of the most agonizing and frustrating things about being alone in life, and in my situation in particular, is watching the guys here who receive mail and visits from their family and friends. They are fortunate in the sense that they have someone in their life who is expressing their love and care for them, and see to it that they are able to go to the institution store to get some of the things they need 
so they don't have to eat the slop the institution feeds. Between now and the time I meet death, I will never stop seeking or desiring to find or have a special someone in my life, and I'll never stop looking. If I meet this special someone only a split second before my death, then all of my wishes will be delivered, and it would be then that I become the richest man in the world. I guess for me, maybe because I've never received it, love is everything. Miss Aarons wrote, When I was in Mississippi in December 1988, one of the men I met was Leo Edwards, who was executed seven months later. Leo told me at one point that he thanked God for being where he was. For the best part of an hour, I listened as he told me the story of his childhood. He came from an unhappy home and had been abused by his alcoholic father. He did not obtain much education and drifted into petty crime at an early age. A spell in prison introduced him to drugs and it was while under the influence of drugs that he committed the crimes for which he was eventually executed in June 1989. He wrote about his childhood. I had turned to drugs because there was no feeling of love or happiness in my family, for as far back as I can remember, there was always tension and fear in the atmosphere because of my father, and it seemed he wanted to beat me whenever he saw me. I used to think I was running away from home when I was 9 or 10, 11 years old, and I hid underneath the house. Look, I hope you can forgive me if I don't go any further with this. It brings back memories that still seem to find a way of hurting my heart. But I still have my boyhood dreams deep down inside, and one day, God willing, I will be able to live it. We also have the account of Walter Correll, who provided the following of his formative years. As far back as I can remember, my dad was a heavy drinker, and every time he would drink, he would hit my mom and me. Of course this caused me to have trouble, so I started running with the wrong people and getting into trouble. Well, I got so bad that my parents had to put me in a foster home where I stayed for seven years. At first it was alright, but then I started getting into trouble at school and at home. When I turned 15, I was moved to another foster home, where I stayed for four months. While there, I learned about skipping school and about pot. At first, I didn't do a lot of these things, but when I got back home, it got even worse. And that's when I really got into drugs and alcohol. At first, it wasn't bad, but my dad was still drinking and beating on my mom. I started staying away from home as much as I could, and my drug habit got even worse. Every day, I had to have something to drink or some kind of drug. As everyone knows, after so long, you get used to a drug. You need something stronger to take its place. Only someone who has taken drugs knows what I'm talking about. Well, one thing led to another, and I quit school at age of 15, and that's when I really started getting into trouble. I started stealing bikes and other things out of stores until I got caught. The judge was very fair and put me on probation, but I wasn't happy. I wanted my parents to suffer for putting me into a foster home, so I kept taking drugs and getting into trouble. At the age of 18, I got my first taste of what jail was like. I got eight months. But before going to court, I prayed and made a lot of promises to God if he would help keep me out of prison. And he did. Well, I did my time and got out, but I went back out to the same way of life. I didn't have any way to pay for my drugs. As you can guess, it wasn't long before I was in trouble with the law again. Me and a couple of friends stole a jeep. We went to the beach and had fun until we came back. We got caught, and since I was the oldest, I was the one the blame was put on. Once again, I was praying to God and making a lot of promises if he would keep me out of prison, which he did. But after I got out, it was the same old thing all over again. 
Over the years, it was the same thing time after time. Then one day, while I was working, my boss said the cops came by his house and said they wanted to ask me some questions. I couldn't think of anything I had done, so I called them and told them where I was. When they picked me up, they said I was under arrest for capital murder, and I just froze. They had to carry me to the car. For three days, I was questioned about this, and no matter how many times I said I didn't do it, they kept pushing, and finally, I couldn't take it anymore, and said I did it. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have picked up with some of the psychological and childhood commonalities shared with Donald Bull in his case. And as we continue on, keep your heart, mind, and ears open. Not something a trial judge would ever allow in a court of law, as emotion has no place in a jury box and for good reason. Emotions can be manipulated. However, what I ask of you now is not to open your heart to be influenced or to be manipulated, but to simply feel for those commonalities. They may better allow you to identify a pattern. And when this pattern is recognized, I ask not, ladies and gentlemen, for you to taint your reasoning with emotion, to apply this pattern to your logical reasoning. Frequently, sublime design, the underlying construct that indeed lies below the surface, must be felt for, as it lies out of sight of the eyes. We often suggest we feel, process, and think with both the heart and the mind, yet in opposing ways. But in actuality, all feeling and thought takes place only in the mind, in the brain, within the confines of the skull not the chest. Nonetheless, a certain sublime, subliminal notion, the nuance, the essence of things, the subtleties, those underlying threads that make up a pattern, a pattern of a system, as mentioned, does indeed, more often than not, lie out of sight. One must really open all the senses to catch its drift, its essence, its signature, and thus, the synchronicity, that a casual connecting principle that may not reveal itself outright, but which does in fact rise above the surface from time to time. So take note of its presence, and keep an eye out, an ear out, all the senses you got, as it marks its X's, dots its I's, and crosses its T's along the way to fruition. That which it seeks to manifest, create, shift, shape, and form into the system it is poised to be. That which tethers itself to time, and with time, we have repetition, and with repetition, we have rhythm. So what is the rhythm? What is the nature of crime? that heartbeat that keeps it alive and flourishing through time. To begin with, it is important to state that deviance from accepted social norms is a universal phenomenon. And research into criminology reveals that specific social characteristics are linked with a greater likelihood of involvement in criminal activity. It is well documented that most offenders tend to be young, disadvantaged males. However, the amount, kind, and intensity of them differ not only from society to society, but aspects within those societies. Among those criminals, primarily young males, social and economic disadvantage has been found to be strongly associated with crime, particularly the most serious offenses including assault, robbery, and homicide. Data collected on offenders shows that they tend to be unemployed or employed in low-paying, unskilled jobs. Research has also found that social status, poverty, and childhood exposure to violent behavior are also huge causes in the disparities of crime. In 2018 alone, the FBI recorded about 1.2 million violent crimes and over 7 million property crimes in the United States. While these numbers are not historically alarming, they do make it clear that crime 
in all its forms, is an unfortunate part of our society, but most of us are not criminals. So what drives a small number of us to commit criminal acts? It's a question that has plagued humanity since the beginnings of civilization. In modern times, criminology studies have taken a scientific approach to finding answers. While each person who commits a crime has unique reasons and life situations, there are a few overarching factors criminologists believe can contribute to criminal behavior. For instance, adverse childhood experiences. In the same way that we can't choose our genetics, we can't choose how we are raised as children. Some of us enjoy pleasant, even idyllic childhoods, while others are less fortunate. Children raised in terrible situations are at an increased risk for criminal behavior in both their juvenile and adult years. In fact, research shows that convicted criminals are likely to have experienced four times as many adverse childhood events than non-criminals. Also, biological risk factors. Just like we can't choose our eye color, we can't select the chemical makeup of our brain. This can predispose us to various complications, from clinical depression to epilepsy. Some criminologists believe our biology can also predispose us to criminality. That's not to say that criminals are born that way, just that biological factors have been shown to increase the likelihood that we might commit criminal acts. Next, negative social environment. Who we're around can influence who we are. Just being in a high crime neighborhood can increase our chances of turning to crime ourselves. But being in the presence of criminals is not the only way our environment can affect our behaviors. Research reveals that simply living in poverty increases our likelihood of being incarcerated. When we're having trouble making ends meet, we're under intense stress and are more likely to resort to crime. Substance abuse. There is no debate that criminal behavior and substance abuse are linked. 85% of the American prison population has abused drugs or alcohol. 63 to 83% of individuals who are arrested for most crimes test positive for illegal drugs at the time of their arrest. Some intoxicants, such as alcohol, lower our inhibitions, while others, such as cocaine, overexcite our nervous system. In all cases, the psychological and physiological changes caused by intoxicants negatively impact our self-control and decision-making. An altered state can lead directly to committing a criminal act. Additionally, those addicted to intoxicants may turn to crime to pay for their habit. Not to simplify things, but what of that pesky scenario? Wrong place, wrong time. In a location or situation where something terrible is about to happen. Miss Aarons includes a letter from a death row inmate named Sam Johnson, who had written her the following. Jan, I am here without family and friends. I am innocent of the crime I've been convicted of, and I struggle daily to prove my innocence. This New Year's Eve will mark six years that I have been here. I met the guy who killed the officer on the same day it occurred. I won't try to portray myself to you as an angel or as a person with a lily-white character. I am not a person of violence and have never in my life seriously hurt anyone. We were stopped by a highway patrolman for no reason. I was driving, but I was not speeding or violating any rules of the highway. After stopping us, the officer searched me and asked that I stand at his car while he searched my car. He found nothing illegal in my car at the time and finished with searching the front seat. He then told my front seat passenger to exit the car and stand where I was standing at the officer's car. He got out of my car, but instead of coming to where I was standing, he walked between the cars to where the officer was bent over in the back seat and stabbed him in the back. I had never seen the knife that he had, 
and it was several months afterward that I found out that he had known the officer, and that he knew that the officer had killed a man 10 months before we were stopped. This individual told his cousin that he killed the officer because he was scared the officer was going to kill him. Anyway, after I saw him stab the officer, I tried to stop him. I ran to my car where he and the officer were at this time, struggling and trying to take the knife from him. He cut me with the knife in two places in my right hand. I screamed at him that he had cut me. He then dropped the knife and continued to struggle with the officer, and I ran to my car with the intention of leaving. I got to my car but couldn't get it started because my hand was so bloody and kept slipping off the key. The individual reached over me and started the car. By the time this happened, I heard a gunshot. Then the individual got back into my car and told me to drive. Jan, I was so panic-filled at this time, I couldn't do anything but what he told me. I drove. I didn't know whether he still had the knife or the gun and I was panic-filled. I drove to a deserted area that he told me to and then I jumped out of my car and tried to run away from him and all that had happened. I tried to run away from him and he told me not to run and I stopped. He was wearing a white sweater that was filled with blood and he told me to help him take it off. I did this and threw the sweater into some bushes near the railroad tracks that were close by. Fear isn't the correct word for what I was that day, but it's the only word that I know can come close to describing the feelings that were within me. After helping him take off the sweater, I ran aimlessly away from him. He stole another car and then drove to where I was and picked me up. I knew nothing else but to get in, and I got in the car. He drove for about half a block and then pulled over and told me to drive because he was too nervous to drive. I didn't want to, but I drove the car and followed his directions on where to go. Roadblocks had already been set up, and we were caught a short while later. It was God's grace that we weren't killed at the roadblock, because the officers there shot the car we were in into total destruction. He knew several officers who were at the roadblock and told them that I killed the officer. I was almost beaten to death. As I've said, he was from the town where this happened, and all of his family lived in this town. I didn't find this out until after my trial, but his family was pretty influential in this town and used their influence to buy him out of this trouble. He was allowed to be the state's witness against me and testified that I stabbed the officer and shot him. Here are some facts that weren't allowed to be brought out at my trial. The individual testified that I was wearing the sweater and that in stabbing the officer, my hand slipped down onto the knife and that's how I got the cuts on my hand. He also said that after stabbing the officer, I changed hands with the knife and tried to get the officer's gun away from the officer with my bloody hand. Jan, the knife was a butcher knife and had one cutting edge to it. If I had used the knife and cut myself while using it, there is no way that I could have had two cuts in my hand in the positions that these cuts were on my hand. If I had worn the sweater, as he said I did, there is no way that my blood wouldn't have been on it somewhere. If I had struggled with the officer and tried to take his gun away from him with my bloody hand, as he said I did, there is no way that my blood wouldn't have been on the officer or on his clothes, or that his blood wouldn't have been on me or my clothes. Jan, none of my blood was on the officer or his clothes, nor was any of his blood on me or on my clothes. My fingerprints were not found on the knife or the gun. No fingerprints were found on either of these items. Jan, three people identified my passenger as the man they saw struggling with and perhaps stabbing the officer. They testified to this at my trial, but yet I still was found guilty solely upon this man's testimony and sentenced to die. Jan, God knows that I didn't kill the officer or anyone else, but I sit here on death row and this state is doing all in its power to execute murder me. My case is before the United States Supreme Court at this time and we are waiting for them to make a decision on whether to overturn my death sentence. My attorneys seem optimistic about things, but there is no way to know at this time what exactly the court is going to do in my case. I hope and pray that they will see fit to overturn my case, but I just don't know. Looking back at the tragedy, I know that it's possible for me to be killed by this person. I pray that I won't be killed, 
although I know that I may be. I tell you about me and what has happened to me because if I am killed, I'll at least know that someone other than my family knows of the tragedy that was Sam Johnson. I can't begin to tell you how hard all of this has been upon me. Jan, I haven't seen any of my family since I've been here, and I never knew that loneliness could hurt so much. I don't mean to cry upon your shoulder, but speaking about this place, one can find very little that's happy to speak about. I think and feel that the tragedy that is America must be brought to the attention of the world. Jan, I don't know what else to say at this time. If you or anyone that you know would like to correspond with me, I'll be more than happy to write. I'm open and honest about myself, and I would like to develop a friendship with you. Thank you for writing, and may God bless you. Sam Jan then addresses the reader. For three days after receiving Sam's letter, I went about in something of a daze, as I tried to absorb the notion of a possible innocent man spending six years on death row. Here was something utterly beyond my normal frame of reference. While doing my best not to abandon my critical faculties, I found something persuasive and genuine about Sam's letter. I wrote in my reply that what he was having to endure was beyond my comprehension, and that I felt a desperate and potent rage at the tragedy that had befallen him. Miss Aaron continues in the following chapter on the difficulty of obtaining a proper defense. Always in such cases, the defendant is poor, and his family is without political influence in the community. Perfectly socioeconomically deprived fodder for the prosecutor's discriminatory judicial grist mill. All people on death row have one thing in common. They are poor and can't afford the high-powered attorneys that can, at the very least, give you a very good chance at a life sentence. Most are economically deprived and raised in poverty or near poverty. So many doors are closed to them too. They grew up in the poor neighborhoods, where the majority had limited horizons. The collective sense of hopelessness that exists among the poor contributes to reduced expectations. All these areas of deprivation, singly or combined, mean a lack of local community and political influence. So they get the death sentences the other 95% convicted of the same crime do not. By definition, these people on America's death row constitute a specific class. Even though they differ ethnically and religiously, they have one or more of these areas of deprivation in common, or they wouldn't have a death sentence. Jan goes on more impassioned. America is killing the economically deprived, those of the lower social economic strata, killing the insane, killing the retarded, killing illiterates, killing the emotionally crippled, killing the childishly immature and mentally underdeveloped, killing the socially disenfranchised and the politically powerless of our society. Killing those so criminally abused as children that they never had a chance to develop normally to a well-balanced human being. Their minds were stunned, twisted, and mentally and emotionally destroyed as children. When a deprived person of this lower socioeconomic class has to defend himself or herself against the state's imposition of the death sentence as a pauper or near pauper, this person is stripped of the socially recognized necessities when in conflict with the awesome, overwhelming power of the state judiciary. This defendant has neither powerful relatives, nor political influence to any degree, nor the money necessary to pay for a defense strong enough to avoid the death sentence. Here she is naked, devoid of the armor of social and financial power, a position necessary to survive an encounter with the inexorable machinery of the state. The state's power is most awesomely displayed when wielded against a social pauper, 
who stands alone in this conflict, who must piteously appeal to the state, the very one trying to kill him or her. For the paltry funds the state reluctantly gives in amounts so puny as to permit only an inadequate semblance of even a poor defense. For all these reasons, I ask you to accept the definition of those on death row as a cognizable class of socioeconomically deprived. I ask you to recognize the use of the death sentence as an act of social genocide. We are killing the weaker of the species. We kill our mistakes. The financially strong and socially fortunate survive, and the weak perish just like the jungle animal kingdom. John Lamb, a white prisoner who had been on death row in Texas since 1983, wrote Jan, My trial lawyers did more to convict me than the district attorney did, but I didn't know then what I know now, as far as the law goes. It's hard to blame my lawyers. I realize they have to live in their communities and live with the DA for years. I do blame the process. The public put so much pressure on the DA to get a conviction on a capital case that the rules governing a fair trial go right out the window. A DA could end up losing his job, his future, if a press-covered case ends up in acquittal or not guilty. Knowing how much a career means, how can I say I blame them? To prove my point, before my trial, the DA offered me a 40-year sentence. My lawyer tells me, if we can get that phony confession thrown out, they can't convict you of anything. So I refuse the 40 years. So my lawyer comes back and says, believe it or not, the DA said, make him an offer. Once again, I said no. So my trial lawyers had me sign an affidavit releasing them of blame, stemming from me not accepting the plea bargain. Boy, was that a mistake. By relieving my trial lawyer of fault, I gave him the green light to sell me out. Another young white prisoner wrote before writing about his childhood, This place is like no other place. The conditions are the worst I've ever seen or heard of. We need all the support we can get. He then goes on, on my sixth birthday, my father, a heavy drinker, took me by the feet and started beating my head on the floor until it was bleeding. I didn't know it then, but this was to be just one of many beatings I would receive, just because things weren't going the way dad wanted them to. Well, for a long time, mom put up with the beatings until she got smart to the way dad would start drinking. If he wasn't drinking, he would come home from work on time, but if he was drinking, he was always late. So to keep herself and me from getting beat up, she would take us kids and walk around the streets until dad would go to sleep. It didn't matter if it was raining or snowing, we had to walk the streets to keep from getting beat up. When you are a little kid, you don't think about what's going on. You just make a game of it, and that's what we did. The inmate also wrote about the circumstances of his trial and sentencing. He wrote, The day the hearing came, and there were a lot of people there to help me so the judge wouldn't sentence me to death. People from the foster homes were there, teachers from the schools I was in, family and friends. I found out things about myself I never knew before. They were saying I had brain damage and other things wrong with me. Then my dad got on the stand and told the judge about how hard my childhood was. I was watching the judge to see what his reaction would be, but it stayed the same. And after everyone had finished talking, the judge told me to stand up. I wasn't sure my legs would be able to hold me up, so I grabbed the table and pulled myself up. I was crying and really didn't hear all the judge said, but when he said, I sentence you to death, I heard that and I just broke down. I don't really know if I walked from the courtroom or if the guards carried me, 
But when I walked into the cell block, the guys asked me what the judge had given me. When I said he sentenced me to death, they thought I was joking. Then the guard told them they had to lock up so I could get my stuff out of the cell. Now these guys I had been with for nine months, and now they had to be locked away from me. Hearing the guard say this made me feel as if I had some kind of an illness these people could catch. It also made me feel like I wasn't good enough to be around other people. When I walked in to get my stuff, the guys wanted to shake my hand, but the guard told them not to get near me. I asked him what they were going to do with me if I did shake their hands, and he looked at me real funny. I know I saw a tear in his eyes when I said this. After I packed my stuff and told the guys goodbye, the guard took me back downstairs and put me in the small cell all by myself. They were going to take me to the state prison that day. It was already 4 o'clock, and I didn't see why I couldn't just stay at the jail until morning. While in the little cell, I called my parents and told them that they were moving me that day. And then I called my lawyer and thanked him for nothing. He had the nerve to ask me why I was so mad at him. He told me that he had done the best job he could, and all I could do was think to myself, I pity the next guy he defends. After I got off the phone, Vicky came to the door and asked me how I was doing. She was one of the guards working at the jail, and she also testified in my hearing, saying that I shouldn't be given the death sentence. When she asked me this, I started crying and couldn't stop. She told me she was sorry she couldn't help me any more than she did, but I told her that she did her best and that I was very grateful. She even got the other guard to open the cell door so she could give me a hug. While we were hugging, she started crying and had to leave. I can't say for sure, but I think a lot of guards knew I wasn't guilty, but there was nothing they could do. This theme is picked up again by an inmate in Texas. What I'll tell you about my case is not a particularly unique story. I would love to tell you that my case was especially egregious, but it's not. In almost every case you might be able to get the inside story on, you'd find similar tactics used by the authorities. It's true that a lot of the guys really are guilty as charged, but invariably, the tactics used to indict and try the guys are abusive and illegal. The thing is, if the police and prosecutors have this malevolent and corrupt system in place to use against the guys who did commit crimes, there is nothing to stop them from using it against innocent people and they are using it against them. What makes it particularly hard to fight is that it comes across that you're trying to defend the real, hardcore, and guilty guys. And as with me, and a lot of guys who might be guilty of the crime they're charged with, well, they happen to be people who don't exactly command respect and admiration from the general public. The result is that this corrupt system, though mostly hidden by apathy and complexity, is completely resistant to being amended. It's immune to attack. What happened to me was not the result of a mistake, a single malicious act, or an isolated incident. What happened to me is the typical product of a well-oiled machine. It was standard operating procedure. It's been going on for years, it's continuing as you read these words, and will continue for a long time. There will be many people victimized by this system. I talked to the old timers here, the ones who have been in the prison system on and off for years. They tell me that the cops and prosecutors have always been capable of this, but that in the old days, say from 72 on back, only when the person was particularly obvious or dangerous and had a long history, and they had been unable to get him in any other way. They tell me that they themselves understand why it would sometimes happen. But it seems to me that the need to prosecute, the need to win at any cost every time, in other words, the politics of crime and prosecution, have changed things so that the dirty old system used only occasionally has become the rule. In the old days, 
Things were usually moderated by the fact that the prosecutor couldn't use the bogus system on just anyone. The victim had to be particularly evil. Now, with the public's willingness to buy anything they're told, the prosecutor can and will do it to most people they can get capital charges against. It's almost as if this machine, the corrupt system, has gained a life of its own, like some benevolent god that everyone is terrified of, afraid to defy. And like some ancient cult, the masses make sacrifices to that god in the hope of appeasing it and averting evil, harm, and ruin. Many prisoners sum up death row simply in one word, hell. It is a word that reoccurs again and again in the letters to Jan. The following is typical. I have spent 20 years in continuous incarceration. I am 40 years old. I have no desire to foresee hell in any other form, for I have already discovered it. This is a literal hellhole. It is a living hell. If the fires do not consume me, I hope to be free someday to tell you of my terrifying experience. That such a hell, under no circumstances, can be the answer. Not ever. This is my hope, an aspiration for which I live. When a man first comes to death row, the first thing he experiences is the loneliness. You are locked up in a 5 foot by 8 foot cell, all on your own. It comes complete with a toilet, a sink, and a bunk that is always too short for you. No one really knows what loneliness is until they come to the row. No matter how many letters you get or write, no matter how many friends you make, from day one, there is a big compartment in your heart that is labeled loneliness. On the row, a person feels lost in a deep despair. You feel no one will ever be able to help you. All is lost. Many, many books have been written about prison life, but there is no way you can ever know what this place is like unless you have been in this cage. You cannot describe the misery and despair in a place like this. One has to feel it. A man without hope is a man without a dream. For if I try to think of a tomorrow, it only comes down to one thing. Sad, lonely, and without a purpose. Prison life isn't easy, nor is it a smooth ride for anyone. It's more easy to die here without the help of the state or anyone else. The mind seems to die slowly with the mere frustration and mental pain, if only you knew. That alone is the death penalty. No one really lives in here. We just do our best to survive. I live in a world I hope no reader ever experiences. My house doubles as my yard. I receive room service for everything, not because I want to, but because I cannot leave my house. My house is, in fact, my entire world. I have nothing beyond my floor space, smaller than many bathrooms. My house is so small that my toilet is also my wash basin and dinner table. My room service consists of cold food on paper plates and a dirty mop twice a week to clean my concrete floor, which I sleep on. I must yell at my neighbor in order to talk to anyone. Air conditioning is an open window in the wintertime, and heating is by the sun during the summer. I am not a vicious dog or any other type of violent animal. I am a prisoner. I live in a world many of you believe I deserve, but mainly because you don't know me, or just what kind of conditions I truly live under. The things you take for granted I don't even dream of getting. Hot food, medical services, education, sunlight, fresh air, clean bed, clean room, and many other normal things. All I get is threatened by a riot squad if I take more than eight minutes in the shower. I admit I'm no candidate for citizen of the year, but does that automatically make me runner-up for vicious animal of the year? Much has been said about prisoners as a group. To explain is futile because a prisoner's world is beyond a non-prisoner's comprehension. As I am, 
You'll never know unless you become like me. And I hope you never do. You won't like what you see. Any human can become an animal in prison. But ladies and gentlemen, if by this point you're as curious as me, just how men and women actually cope on death row, let's continue on. Jan read, Much depends on whether they are guilty or innocent, on the support they receive from family and friends, and on their mental resources. Some prisoners manage to keep fairly busy, what with correspondence, legal work, writing articles, or even books, craft work, or other various things such as meditation. The ones who suffer most are the ones lacking mental resources. Above all, remorse can eat people up. In their minds, they go over and over the events that landed them on death row. They persuade themselves that they are innocent, or they even blank everything out. This may take the form of drugs, either prescribed or smuggled in, or escapism into endless TV soaps. In my experience here, the inmate goes on to write, I have noticed two extremes that many men go to. Some men will feel so terrible about their crimes, they will give up on life and of such hatred of self that it is dangerous, to the point of suicide, extreme depression, etc., in fact, just two nights ago, a man began to cut himself on his male organ, and this is not the first time for him to do this. I have to think that he is so burdened and weighed down with his guilty feelings that he despairs of life. For the first year or so, I was filled to the brim with pure hatred over what had happened to me. Losing all that I had and everyone I loved filled me so full of hatred I almost did go crazy. All of it drained out of me when it dawned upon me that I had to stop thinking about all that I had lost and start thinking about what I could gain. Even from the worst of situations a person could be in, to be wronged, as I've been, by an experience such as this, would be for you, as it is for me, an affront to your dignity, integrity, and all else that you hold sacred. You would know, as I do, that to crack would be to never be able to prove your innocence, and your mind would never allow itself to degenerate into a state where it couldn't strive to bring your innocence to light and regain your freedom. I didn't harm or kill anyone and I can't allow myself to deteriorate to a state where I can no longer strive to prove my innocence. Jan, children, and their innocence at times are more perceptive than adults, and I've witnessed guilt and remorse literally destroy people in here. My innocence is what, I'm sure, preserves what little sanity I have left. I watched each new day bring a brand new death to those around me through feelings of guilt and remorse, and I've seen this place destroy them. While I wait for my decision, I sit daily and I watch the harassment, torment, hate, anger, physical abuse, verbal abuse, loneliness, and even love at its utmost. I see people driven to the point of seeming insanity. I see people who lose themselves inside. This place is really catching up to many. They think about dropping their appeal at times, just to keep from thinking about the future and how old they would be if they ever get out. But my lawyer helps keep my spirits up because I believe he is doing everything he can to save my life. Another inmate wrote, It's been a somewhat tough six months for me, though nothing I won't overcome. I believe there is a madness going on in this prison. I'm beginning to see all the reasons one can and will die in here. Right now, officers and guards are going around taking people out of their cells, cutting their hair for no good reason. They don't have anything better to do. The ones who don't want a haircut, the guards will beat them down with four-foot sticks after handcuffing and leg shackling them. Then they cut their hair anyway. God knows what they are doing. 
but it doesn't make any sense. I'm sick of seeing and hearing all the madness. I don't think I will forget any of this anytime soon. And more times than I can remember, I've ached beyond imagination to see the children, any children at play. Very seldom around here do we get the chance to see a child. In more ways than one, face to face, I live to behold a child's smile out from this man-made hell I am forced to dwell in. Please don't misconstrue me. I am not at all bitter or hateful towards those who hold me in captivity. In fact, I am often grateful to be where I am, considering the children who are starving and dying all over the world needlessly. And another inmate? You don't have friends when you come in here. When I was free, I had lots of so-called friends. Since I've been here, I haven't heard or seen them. What kind of friends are they? I am tired of being in here. I don't know how much more I can take. I just feel very alone. If anyone can make it through this, they can make it through anything. How can any of us prepare ourselves to die? I have been here eight years now. I don't want to be so old when I get out, I can't play with my son. Sometimes I want to give up, but I can't. I will fight them until I can't go anymore. I don't like my son to see me here like this. When we get a visit, no contact of any kind. We have on handcuffs and behind bars. We all feel down sometimes, and there ain't but one man who can bring you back up, and that is God. When the state takes someone's life, yes, it hurts everybody. I am trying to hang on in here for a little while longer, but it's getting harder and harder. We go outside sometimes whenever they let us. There are no trees up here. Everything is flat. I want to go home so bad. I want to be free to do what I want, to go as I please. They give us a visit two times a month, but I don't get one. In the winter here, you freeze, and in the summer, you cook, and the bugs will eat you up. You can't see the sunset. I've almost forgotten how a sunset looks. Sometimes I want to run away and keep running, running, running forever. People here are so full of hate. It is an evil place. I like to go outside and look up at the sky and thank God, my father, for letting me come outside. I like looking up and seeing the birds flying over because it's a great joy to know that there's still some things in this world that are free. You asked me if I could describe the way that we are treated on death row, the routine, and the surroundings. I fear that it would take a book to do justice to this subject. They do set out to dehumanize us in any way they can. The treatment would amount to torture even without the death sentence being a factor. We wear no watches or rings or other jewelry. The only furnishings in our cells are a wall locker and a television. Apart from these, our cells are stripped and we are not allowed to personalize them. Generally, we are only let out of our cells for one hour, five days a week. We spend 22 hours and 45 minutes each day locked down in our 8x7 cells. There are no education programs and no work details for death row inmates. We have no windows to look outside in this kind of forced idleness. The environment is rigid and unrelaxed, geared to be restrictive and to punish all who exist within it. They deny us contact, physical touch by our loved ones. In fact, our visits here are in a twisted way used to undermine the self-respect and emotional health of those who participate. I've lived within its walls for all but a few months of the past 13 years of my life. Within these walls, not unlike the Jews, I have been terrorized and traumatized by this experience. All of those who have been executed here were close to me. Along with them, I have felt the betrayal of our humanity in my heart and in my soul. I know that no segment of society should have to bear the brutalization of this humanity and that it should be halted. I grew up with a love for wide open spaces, the hills, the lakes, channels, and springs, being true to the spirit of the outdoors. I used to enjoy hunting and fishing and camping, being under the moon and stars at night, 
with nature's sounds entertaining me and filling up one with the darkness and all of creation. To be sure, today, hunting and fishing do not appeal to me anymore. I am the hunted, the caught, the prey, the victim of the crafty, the cunning, the powerful. I can identify with all hunted, captured, preyed upon life forms in a way that I can see myself at one with creation, being senselessly destroyed for sport or materialistic profits. And another. I stay pretty much to myself. It's very easy to get misled or killed in this place, hanging around with the wrong people. I don't allow the noise to affect me. Yes, I do get cold sometimes, mostly when I'm walking around in the morning time. I don't have a sweater, so I try to walk up and down my cell doing a little calisthenics till I warm up. There's no heat in our cells when it gets too cold, when the heaters at each end of the halls aren't working. I sometimes burn the milk carton or newspapers that I have. I came to death row in the latter part of 1977 with basically one problem. I was uneducated, virtually illiterate. But because of the environment in which I was placed, I developed other problems that were more harmful. In only a year's time of having been placed in a hostile prison environment, I had become desensitized, uncaring, untrusting, and with much shame, I confess, dangerous. Under this system, prison guard brutality is a way of life. Exploitation, manipulation, violence, and homosexuality are widespread. Manhood is measured by one's ability to impose one's will on others. Surely this is a distorted concept of manhood, but the fact is your rationality becomes rationality in an irrational world. Generally speaking, there are three classes of prisoners, predators, prey, and crazies. The crazies were generally left alone, but by no means were they exempt from the ever-present threat of violence and cruelty. Unlike the so-called weaklings, the prey, who were singled out daily, the crazies had to first stick their hands into the fire, so to speak. For this reason, some guys pretended to be crazy, faking split personalities, inflicting self-mutilation, claiming to be haunted by demons from hell, or someone other than themselves. I never gave much thought to playing crazy. If I had any fear, playing that role was it. The rumor was, once those prison doctors begin treating you, you won't be faking it for long. So I decided to take my chances, trusting that I could stay out of harm's way by being sensible. I managed to avoid a lot of trouble, but even so, I had my share of run-ins with would-be predators and oppressive guards. I also served my share of time in solitary, mainly from trusting inmates who I thought were friends. It was there in solitary where I made up my mind that no one was to be trusted. Prison was indeed a jungle, and it was necessary to live by the rules of the jungle if you wanted to survive. Trying to avoid trouble was senseless. There were no hiding places. Trouble had to be met head on, perhaps even invited. Pontiac Correctional Center, established in June 1871, was a boys reformatory that eventually transformed into a level one maximum security penal institution which housed male death row inmates until the Illinois death penalty was abolished in 2011. Currently, the prison is in the midst of calls for closing due to the long history of inmate and guard violence and bloody riots. Prisoners are often kept in confinement cells with nothing but a slice of bread to eat every morning, and three-men teams assembled by officers who have long punished and abused inmates and covered up that abuse. 
Sitting on death row in his 8 by 10 foot cell, 24 hours a day, except on days allowed limited time for yard recreation, showers, and the use of the law library, Donnie Bull did his best to avoid meeting trouble head on. He stuck to himself, and invited only upon himself to visit the prison law library as often as allowed, where he worked vigorously handwriting out motion after motion, a mind with an IQ in the lower 2 percentile, learning new words and legal jargon minute by minute that most of us will never hear nor use in the course of our lives with any luck. And as motion after motion had been denied after two years on the road, Donnie's first appeal and real shot of a new trial was to arrive on March 2, 1998. On March 10, 1998, the Peoria Journal Star read, New murder trial sought in Canton case. Attorney tells Supreme Court a juror was biased. Springfield. The Illinois Supreme Court was asked Monday to order a new trial for Darnell Bull Jr., who was on death row for killing a Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter, then setting their apartment on fire to cover up the murders. In oral arguments before the court, Attorney Stephen Clark of the State Appellate Defender's Office said Bull had been denied an impartial trial when he was tried for the January 13, 1993 murders of Donna Tompkins, 30, and her daughter, Justine. Bull was also denied the right to be present during a crucial part of jury selection, Clark said. Bull was convicted of strangling and smothering the victims, but he maintained his innocence, and a judge sentenced him to the death penalty. Clark told the Supreme Court that a juror who wound up serving as a forewoman in the trial was biased against Bull and should not have been seated on the jury. During an interview in the trial judge's chambers that took place just before opening statements, the woman told the judge and attorneys on both sides that a co-worker had mentioned the Bull case to her and said Bull had done that before. Clark said in the same interview, the woman said that she didn't believe she could be impartial if evidence showed that Bull and Tompkins had been involved in an abusive relationship. Clark said that Assistant Attorney General, who asked the High Court to uphold Bull's conviction and sentence, agreed with Clark that Bull wasn't present when the juror made her remarks. But Bull and his attorneys were given a chance to have the juror excused, and they did not. Rather, Bull's attorneys consulted with him, and they agreed to accept the woman as a juror. In one of his other arguments on Bull's behalf, Clark told the justices that the death penalty is unconstitutional because it is inevitable that an innocent person will be executed, referring to the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. Clark said, there is no more cruel and unusual punishment than the execution of a person who is innocent. Supreme Court took the case under advisement and will issue a ruling later on. Meanwhile, while Donnie's awaiting the Supreme Court decision, his blood pressure certainly elevated. He pinned a letter in his effeminate calligraphy to his longtime buddy on the outside, Mr. Russell Stufflebeam. July 7. 1998. Russ, hello there. Hope you and the wife and kids are all doing great. I know it's been a very long time since you have heard from me, but most of my time is spent researching and learning knowledge of the laws. I haven't wrote a lot of letters for the past couple of years. Things just really needed to cool off somewhat, so that when my legal help started doing their investigation for my appeal, people would be more willing to talk openly. I made the mistake of trying to contact people right after I was put on death row. I was asking and trying to find out why my trial attorney didn't call some of these people, and trying to find out why they didn't do the things that they had told me that they had done, and should have done. Anyway, the people that I had tried to contact wouldn't reply to me then, 
but later they contacted my dad and sisters and told them that they were afraid to answer my letters because they didn't want the police to harass them again. Well, that was two years ago, and the police will not be around talking or harassing anybody, not unless they want to lose their job and go to jail themselves. I was wondering if you remember a person by the name of Nick. He is one of the assistant investigation attorneys working on my appeals. He was in Canton a few months ago. I thought he told me that he had got to talk with you. The reason why he was there was to get maps of Canton and photos of some of the places for the other legal people that are working also on my appeals. But I guess he met and talked with people who had talked and contacted my dad and sisters. Ended up with a lot of information. Anyway, there is a team of these legal people that are getting ready to come to that area. They are doing the investigation for my post-conviction appeal. But they are waiting to see what the Illinois Supreme Court ruling is going to be on my appeal to them. My ruling is and should come down in September of 98. See, my appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court has issues. A call for a new trial. I got a copy of what was put in the Canton newspaper and Peoria Journal Star newspapers. They both said nothing about three other new trial issues that's also a part of my appeal. That juror issue now or later, they can't get around it. But that's what they are waiting on. Legal system seems to work real slow. When a person's rights are violated and the truth of a ruthless wrongful conviction are in the air. Russ, I used to think that I had to prove that I didn't do this that I am here on death row for all by myself. I was wrong. I have to vindicate myself from my family and friends. I have God, the truth, and some good people helping me now. I can't go wrong, but for some reason it should go wrong. At least I'll die knowing I was fighting for what's right, the truth and my innocence. Well, this letter has to end and if you get a chance, drop me a line. Hope you are all doing great. Bye for now, Donnie Bull. Inmate N38170, Pontiac, Illinois. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.